by recognising that this is a problem and we have got a solution to it, we can begin to make our workplaces better. You can't, you can't shy away from it. Hello and welcome to Help to Thrive. Um, so we've gone a little bit off piece this this episode. Um, it's our first episode, so we thought it'd be lovely to introduce um, ourselves to you. And we've recorded recorded the bulk of our episodes in um, quite a formal setting at Travis Smith, um, and we thought it might be quite fun just to have a chat uh, together on my sister's sofa in her living room. The Christmas tree's up; it's just before Christmas. Um, uh, the dog is crated in the kitchen, so if you can hear some yapping, that's that's Cookie who wants to participate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, like if you could have been a fly on the wall for about the past ten minutes, it's essentially my sister and I who are not at all techie trying to work out how to set up microphones. How hard can it be? How hard can it be? <laughs> I think there's a joke in there about a lawyer, a veterinary nurse, and some podcast equipment. <laughs> they make it look a lot easier on YouTube. <laughs> Um, but we're here and it's in and and in, and hopefully it's recording. Um, I just think I just heard Cookie, so hopefully you all did too. But anyway, the whole point of this episode is to introduce you to um, me and Helen. Yep. And talk about why we set up being human, why we set up a podcast, um, and what you can expect from all the episodes. I think it's um, going to be insightful, um, and I kind of wanted to start by asking, kind of you to explain Claire what your vision and kind of feels like this is for both of us comes from great kind of purpose and passion and um, I think it'd be really great to be able to kind of share that with people who are listening so people who um, you know perhaps wonder why 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 are we doing this what what's behind it and, and where did we begin so do you want to start telling that story? Yeah so I took a, a very traditional route through law, did my university degree in law, went um, straight into private practice, um, was a corporate lawyer in the city for four, about four years, three and a half, four years, and then moved in-house. Um, but there was lots of things. I, I was very much the, the child who struggled to harness and control their emotions. So I was always the child who was told to count to naughty. 10. Yeah. She was naughty. Just... <laughs> Just so everybody's under um, no illusions. I was just naughty. I was passionate. <laughs> I'm the blonde angelic one. She's the naughty one. So said my grandmother on several occasions. Um, but actually, maybe that's true. So I was kind of the naughty one, the outspoken one, the one who didn't really fit naturally into the social uh, environment. And, and and what that basically translated to was that I used to get angry. I used to cry, I used to get annoyed and shout, um, and I never really understood. I think I always thought they were strong qualities and that they were quite positive because I knew my mind and I knew what I wanted um, and I had that level of drive. But whenever I was getting into that, you know, into that spiral, if you like, where I was, I could feel myself getting enraged and I was feeling triggered. I never really knew what to do with it. So I knew, I could feel it happening, but I never knew how to step away from it and step back from it and um, without um, kind of exploding. Um, and I think I always really wanted to learn more. I wanted to know how to do it. I wanted to ha harness this kind of passion and emotion and power that I had and, and drive it to its best, but no one ever really, really told me. And I, and I think then through my professional life, I realized I was still in searching for it. I was still thinking this, is, this isn't necessarily a negative um, experience, negative emotion, negative passion. It's just, I just don't know how to bring its strength 
out. I mean, what, I mean, what's, what's your thoughts? Like kind of growing up, I suppose, yeah, we laugh about you being the angelic one. I don't think she was the angelic one, by the way. I can think <laughs> of several examples of her not being angelic. Um, but um, I mean, what was your... I think we're not taught how to um, understand our emotions as children. Um, and I don't think we're taught how to communicate emotions very well as, as children or young adults. And I think you're taught to kind of how to behave socially. Um, and I think our upbringing was really good from that respect where, you know, hopefully quite given lots of opportunities to become quite well-rounded individuals who kind of were given, you know, an amazing childhood. But I don't think any of that prepares you for the realities of life when you start then sort of making your way in the world and encounter, you know, different people with different perspectives. And, you know, nobody sits you down whilst you're at school and say, hey, let's let's have an argument. Let's have a constructive argument and let's manage our emotions and let's understand how our brains work at this point. And I just think that that would be so, so valuable. Um, and I've got two small children and there are, there are, you know, one's in reception and one's in year two. And actually they have windows within their timetable now where they do things like mindfulness. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's all driven, they, they you know, um, kind of uh, active meditation techniques, you know, of, of tapping their legs or, um, you know, wiggling their fingers. And I just think that's something that just didn't exist when we were at school mm -hmm. and probably would have really benefited me. Um, so, so I think that was really where I started. And actually, as I progressed through my career, I remember being in house and thinking, not in house, sorry, in private practice and thinking I'd still get really angry, if, mm -hmm. especially if I was stressed or if I was angry. Um, and I just wanted to understand more about what was happening and how I could get the best out of myself, mm -hmm. um, which I think really drove, kind of drove me to, to inquire and be curious and learn more. I mean, you took it one step further. I mean, I think, I think it's really interesting because we are sisters and we've had very different um, journeys along the way, but we've we've kind of ended up in a very similar place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I say, you've taken it one step further and and studied human factors. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe explaining to people what human factors is would be great. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, for me, I became really interested in human factors working in the veterinary profession. Again, a profession that kind of excels in knowledge of a huge range of things that we have to translate into clinical practice and clinical excellence. But again, doesn't offer um, very much training um, in the non-technical aspects of how to communicate and how to lead people and how to make decisions and, and how to work as teams and how we can cultivate cultures that enhance all of that and help us perform at our, our best and reach, you know, the excellence in, in clinical care of our patients and optimise the well-being of our people as well. Um, I became really interested in what that was and what it was called. And after many kind of conversations over cups of coffee with my, um, my theatre manager at that time, James, we kind of came across this this concept of human factors that we we'd never really heard of before, um, and there was a bit Is of a mystery. Is that yeah, I think so. Literally, I wanted to Google. do some sort of kind of extra qualification in kind of patient safety, but more in this kind of realm of understanding how people's brains work and why we behave in the way that we do and how that can really enhance what we do. And I came across this, um, you know, a couple of masters which looked at 
human factors and I sort of delved into that and discovered it was exactly what I was looking for. It was what I was kind of searching for to to really um, enhance what I believed was missing in, in our clinical environment. Um, so I applied for the master's at Edinburgh. Um, I didn't go to university prior to that. I, I went to, um, when I did my vet nurse training many years before, I went um, sort of day release. Um, so I didn't have any sort of undergraduate qualification as such, but I had done a lot of further education. So it's still amazes me that I was actually let into the master's, but I was. <laughs> Apparently I had enough other qualifications to kind of make up for the fact that I didn't have an undergraduate um, degree. And really never looked back. Um, so started to learn about human factors. And the best way for me to kind of describe human factors is it's making it easy to do the right thing. That's how the clinical human factors group describe it. And it's looking at the fit between people and their environment and the limitations and capabilities that people have, and then how we can design systems and environments around those people and give them the tools they need to optimise well-being and reach high performance. So I think when you were explaining to me that the, um, I think the aspect that we almost most commonly see in our workplaces, which is many, maybe, maybe it's because it's the easiest one to kind of achieve is this kind of the ergonomics and sitting at your desk and, you know, is the screen at the right height? And I suppose yeah. that's all part of it, but actually what, what you focus on now and what we are focusing more with being human is more the, um, I don't know how you'd explain it, but the, the, the less practical, well, it is still practical, but. So the human skills element exactly, is what yeah. we focus on. So, yeah. So, Human factors is a scientific discipline, which is also um, known as ergonomics. So when you think of ergonomics, you probably do think about kind of um, how, you know, table height or or desk height or, or design of, of kind of um, more tangible things, um, things that you can see, chairs, tables, that kind of stuff, or, or perhaps how a, a room is designed and the you know designed in the way that helps us work best so actually it's a huge field that includes things like um biomechanics and understanding how we um our senses work and how that affects us so how like de decibels levels how do they affect our ability to be well and um concentrate and things like that so it's massive um kind of goes right from things like uh, biomechanics of your body and things like physiotherapy right through to to like I say things like human human skills so things like um, communication um, learning to work in teams um, things like that and I think what's really interesting is that they're almost the subjects that people tend not to focus on and, I, and I'm constantly intrigued as to why that is I don't know whether it's because um historically society has viewed kind of your academics and your and your you know the letters you have after your name and um kind of words on a page as more demonstrative of kind of your your um your performance levels when actually there's this whole area that remains in many organizations largely untapped which is the human skills side of it the non-technical skills mm -hmm. Um, the ability to communicate effectively, um, the ability to withstand high levels of stress and still function, um, the ability to connect with people to solicit information. Mm. And I think it was really when we were, I mean, I remember having a conversation with you about 
really kind of drilling into what you do. I mean, for 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 background, we don't we live about two hours apart. Helen lives in Suffolk. I lives in I live in Oxfordshire, and so we would talk about what what we're each doing, and and I kind of had an inkling what human factors was, but I'll be perfectly honest, I didn't really know, and I think it was only when I was really kind of having a bit of an epiphany for myself of of I'd moved jobs and I was had a longer commute, so I was listening to many podcasts and I was saying, well, this is so interesting. I wish I'd learned more about this. Um, and in my training, I was fascinated with Brenny Brown and the concept of vulnerability. And I think you kind of said to me, but that, that's exactly what I do. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I lead training for veterinary nurses and, and vets. And I was really blown away at that point that in a way, I suppose I was a little bit jealous. I was like, <laughs> wow, so the veterinary profession actually really invests in this and, and recognizes its potential. Whereas I don't necessarily think that is something that, that lawyers do. I mean, why do you think that the veterinary profession in particular has embraced this? So I think it comes with the definition of performance and what you see as high performance. So human factors sort of was born and evolved in um, aviation. And we still take lots of our lessons from aviation. It's really important that we understand that aviation is about something like 40 years ahead of healthcare and ahead of veterinary healthcare as well. So they've really done a huge amount of groundwork. They learned from a series of unfortunate accidents in the 1970s. And because of that, they really sat up and began to understand that you know, hierarchy in cockpits doesn't work. People need to be able to speak up. If they see something that's not right, they need to be able to raise that. And things like the Tenerife Air disaster raised that as an issue. Things like communication. Um, again, the Tenerife Air disaster showed us that, you know, if you're communicating and the only word that you understand and hear is takeoff, then that's what you're um, you're going to hear and couple it with a little bit of cognitive bias because you want to take off and you want to get going and you want to get home means that actually, again, for the Tenerife Air disaster, the rest of the message was in Spanish. The crew were English. Do you want to, I mean, we've, ta- we've talked about the Tenerife Air disaster between yeah, ourselves yeah. quite a lot before, but maybe for the benefit of other people listening. Um, yeah, so the Tenerife Air disaster um, happened in the 1970s and it happened on a day when um, a a KLM flight was rerouted from um, another airport to Tenerife um, due to thick fog um, and adverse weather conditions. So they were already kind of up against the clock. Um, as anybody who, who you know flies or has flown regularly knows that occasionally you'll get this terrible situation where you get a delay and then your crew runs out of flying time. You can only fly for a certain amount of time because um, obviously we need to manage fatigue. So on this particular occasion, um, they'd already been diverted. They'd lost quite a lot of time. So they were keen to get going. They were up against the clock. And so when they were kind of told to proceed to prepare for takeoff, um, you listen back to the the black box recorder, which is orange, if, for anybody who doesn't realise that. Um, you listen back to the recording and you hear the co-pilot say, are we sure that KLM... Um, Pan Am flight is off the runway because it was a Pan Am flight that had been taxiing on the runway. And then you hear the pilot say, yes, we need to get going. Um, And the co-pilot doesn't say anything else. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't raise it again. He accepts what the pilot says, because at that time, pilots were revered as kind of godlike creatures. You didn't you didn't answer back. It was like talking back to teacher at school. You just didn't do it. It wasn't okay. Um, which is crazy when the stakes were so high, you would imagine that if you've thought 
that there was any possibility you were going to crash into another plane and that was probably going to result in you losing your life. You'd think you'd find the courage to speak up, but that wasn't the culture that was in cockpit. So he didn't. Um, the next thing that happened was that they received a message over the tannoy of the, the air traffic control, but they didn't it crackled and they didn't hear all of it and it was in Spanish and the only word that they heard and understood was take off and because in their minds they knew they were running out of time they wanted to get the passengers home they wanted to get home they didn't want to run out of flying time they needed to get airborne as quickly as possible they heard the word take off and thought great we're clear to go start to take off the message actually said do not take off you are not cleared for take off so unfortunately, the two planes collided. It was too late by the time that the KLM flight realised that the Pan Am flight was still on the runway, as the co-pilot had suggested. And I think something like 568 people died that day. Um, and obviously, absolute tragedy. But we have learned so much about human factors from that and other similar incidents that occurred at that time. Yeah. And I think I think that... I think it's really powerful because, I mean, it, it was absolutely tragic. Mm -hmm. And um, and we now know that aviation is very dynamic when it comes from learning. Yeah. Um, learning even from, from mistakes. That, even from that incident now, uh, it's mandatory that um, all crew um, have human factors training and they're taught appropriate assertiveness so graded assertiveness how you speak up and the culture of the cockpit is that everybody has a position to speak up they're encouraged to speak up they're encouraged to have psychological safety um to challenge things that they think might not be right and to do it in a way that's really appropriate and they're trained in that and the other thing they've looked at is errors where that have happened and why they've happened and what we can do to clarify the language so now in um, aviation, they don't use words that are not what they're asking you to do. So on that occasion, they said, do not take off. They wouldn't say that anymore. They would say, hold your position. So they wouldn't use the word take off because that begins to kind of trigger your cognitive biases of that's what you hear. So they won't use the word take off unless that's what you're supposed to do. So they've, they've really, it sounds really simple. But it's just not. Yeah. But ultimately it saves lives. Yeah. And, um, I, and, it's, and it's conversations like this where we've had over the years and it's really resonated with me that, okay, so the legal industry isn't about um, life and death in the, in the same respect, at least not for um, majority of lawyers, I would suggest. Mm -hmm. But the same difficulty with communication exists. You know, if I think about law firms and even in-house teams, the, the setup is struck that there is that this hierarchy and that there is this feeling that people can't challenge that or kind of speak up with even new ideas and be curious as to progress. Mm -hmm. And whilst the result of that might not be, you know, as, as extreme as um, life or death, it does have the result of kind of quashing innovation and efficiency, um, you know, and and that ultimately is is detrimental to the business, to the individuals, absolutely. Um, and ultimately, you know, to be crude to the bottom line. So, yeah. but it's also hugely detrimental to the well being of those people who work there. And ultimately, 
people vote with their feet. And so, you know, we've talked about the huge um, rate of attrition. Uh, I think you were saying that 50% of lawyers leave within the first five years yeah, of so practice. We know that 50% of um, young lawyers, so that's anybody up to the uh, up to the age of, well, up to less than five years qualification, will change their role within the first five years. So that a proportion will um, move to a different law firm, a proportion will move to another industry within the legal sector. And then I think it's something like 30% will leave the industry altogether, which is such a waste of talent. It's such a, a massive investment, like going to university and learning that. And, and you know, I just... I also feel that sometimes the shame. people who are leaving, and this is certainly not for everybody, but the people who are leaving are the people who can see the um, can see the potential, but don't feel like they can affect change, mm -hmm. and so can see a different way of working. So choose to go and seek that out, and think that the only way of doing that is outside the legal industry. And mm -hmm. and so you find yourself in this perpetual circle, perpetual cycle of of the people who could drive the difference, or the people who then leave. Um, so nothing nothing changes. And I think now that we've got, you know, there's been lots of studies done about what Gen Z are looking for when they enter the industry and um, how, you know, what, what they're expecting from their workplaces, their interest in a more of a well-rounded life, the importance of values and purpose for them. And it feels like this is the time, this is the moment mm -hmm. where and I don't think it is just law firms. I think it's industry generally kind of needs to sit up and go, well, how do we, how do, how do we enable this? And I think it's quite easy to sit, sit back and think, well, oh, so we haven't got a purpose, which is, um, you know, saving lives or whether they're human or, or animal. Mm. But actually, if you look at the purpose for, you can, you can, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be the obvious purpose. So for example, law firms can be, you know, to um, enable ideas and to enable creativity in others. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be kind of as, as, as black and white as it being, you know, a, 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 like a really overriding social purpose that is, that is obvious. Yeah. And I suppose when people look for like meaning and purpose in what they do, that's completely individual as well, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, without the legal system and lawyers, we would be in a, pretty much a big pickle. So I think it's yeah. important that we support people and, and help them to be well and perform highly. And also, I think there's a large part of human factors. It's about efficiency as well of, of kind of realising how the system supports you and make it really easy to do stuff in, in the simplest, the most efficient manner so that, you know, actually, instead of working really long hours, look at the system. What can we, you know, trim? What can we make more efficient so that you get to go home? Because what might be acceptable as a young lawyer, once you've got a family or you, something like that, you know, you want to, you want to mm. get home. That's that's where your life should be, and you know that's to have well-rounded individuals. We need to support that and and get people where they want to be, so they can really thrive. And I think that's also one of the things that I was fascinated with you, like speaking to you about, was was this concept of understanding how individuals perform. And I guess going right back to the beginning, kind of understanding what it was that you know, how I was feeling when I got angry, um, what was happening, how I could use that or could channel that energy into something more productive. And I think it's the same thing about understanding the impact 
that tiredness has on your body. And when you're in the legal environment, it may be that you can't just wander off and have a nap or mm -hmm. whatever, but there are things that you can do which require kind of uh, less of your, I suppose, cognitive um, abilities. Is that the right word? Yeah, yeah, yeah cognitive um, And so you can do more of that when you're tired. Yeah. And, and that will lead to less mistake. And, you know, it still means that you're using your time effectively. Um, and, and I think just understanding that's made, made quite a difference. I mean, one of the things we talk to people about when we're delivering training, and, and I'm always fascinated about it, is, the, you know, this concept of bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And um, we talk about civility and incivility in particular. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're better to explain kind of the impact that we, you know, we talk about civility having on on your bandwidth and, and the practical effect that that makes. Yeah, I mean, civility is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I was introduced to it whilst I was doing my master's and um, a campaign within human healthcare called Civility Saves Lives. And I was very fortunate to um, meet and be able to be mentored by um, Chris Turner, who's one of the founders of Civility Saves Lives. Um, and now I collaborate with the University of Aberdeen to kind of put some research um, into what it looks like within the veterinary profession. And in fact, um, over last summer, we had a, um, a, a grad, an undergraduate join us for a summer project to look at what incivility looks like or what the literature surrounding incivility um, looks like in the legal profession to kind of put the start of the groundwork into there. But what we know is that when you experience incivility, so when somebody's shouting at you, the reason that you can't think of the right thing to say, I mean, I'm sure we've all been in that position where you kind of walk away and you've got every answer that you should have said, every comeback that, it, you know, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I say that? Oh, for God's sake, why did my brain work? You know, it's because what happens is it's kind of, you get this kind of jamming signal. Your um, amygdala within your limbic system reacts and responds to um to threats and if somebody starts shouting at you then obviously you, your brain's going to perceive a threat and um your amygdala is going to kind of throw you into fight fly fright fright <laughs> flight fright freeze fop Fawn. Fawn. Fawn was in there. Flop, not yeah. flop. Um, there's people who are adding Fs. I don't know why they have to. So it drives me mad. There was three at the beginning and now there's like five or something. Yeah. Um, but that you get the idea is that it throws you, it throws a whole load of hormones at you. So you can go and like climb a tree, run away, do whatever you need to do. Um, it's not particularly helpful when you're trying to think because actually you lose about 61% of your cognitive bandwidth. You're, suddenly your brain stops being able to think rationally reasonably stops being able to work effectively yeah. and this is the point where we make errors and and I think that's exactly I mean if I look back at my kind of understanding of myself that's exactly I can totally see that happening in myself you know someone shouts yeah. at me I lose the ability to function I lose the ability to and actually it doesn't even have to be shouting it doesn't no, have to be shouting to know as well yeah um and it can be it can be in, indirect as well so it could be things like inconsistent expectations mm. it could be you know moving the goalposts or somebody withholding information for personal gain so we've always we've all worked with people within a team who you know perhaps don't share all of the information and then tell you at the end they've already already knew that and you think well why didn't you tell me i could have saved so much time i could have done, i would have done something different you know i think for the listeners out there you can hear cookie is particularly passionate about this point yes <laughs> cookie <laughs> cookie i think has detected a possible delivery of a christmas parcel <laughs> cookie may even think that santa is on his way um so, uh, but 
Yes. So next thing that will happen is the door will go <laughs> just to prove. Keeping it real, everybody. Yeah, exactly, to prove authenticity. But I think that um, civility is so, so important and understanding what we can do mm. and how we can help people have more constructive conversations. So you can still talk about the things that bother you, but do it in a, you know, use things like nonviolent communication. Um, talk to people, make them aware of how they've made other people feel and, you know, give them the opportunity to learn and put it right. That That's really important and really powerful. I think, I th yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and I think, I think it also goes to another point, which we know that one of the reasons that people leave the legal profession, and this is this is um, comes from a report that the IBA did, which is the International Bar Association, is the sense of a toxic workplace, mm. toxic culture, toxic environment. And I think there's a certain amount of shame associated mm. with that. And what that's what that translates to is that people don't really want to speak about it. So people don't really want to accept that an environment, a work environment, even an industry has, has a reputation of being incivil or, you know, being toxic, that no one wants that, that to be the label that's associated with the industry or the place that you work. So we kind of hide it all under the carpet. But actually, when you start looking at the effect that has on your workforce, you, you can't, you can't shy away from it because it's got, you know, has got tangible, there's been studies done, there's tangible data that shows, you know, in percentage terms, the impact it has yeah. on people's um, productivity and the, and the overall like retention rates. So in a world where we're living in and we're constantly searching for efficiencies and, you know, this this phrase of do more with do and with less, you know, this is something that can't really be ignored. No. And it also will just make it's a much nicer environment to live in. I think it's really important to understand the, a little bit of the why behind this as well, because I think a lot of, you know, I think it's fair to say that surgeons get a particularly bad rap mm. for this. And that is because of the way that behavior is modeled and, and you know, over many, many years, the most efficient way to, to get the job done is to behave in these ways. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with the best will in the world, you might go in as an intern or what have you, and you might think, I'm not going to behave like that. But one day you ask somebody in the way that you think is most appropriate and it doesn't it doesn't work because for some reason the job doesn't get done. And then you reflect and you think, well, hang on a minute, how did how did the people who mentored me, who who kind of influenced the way I work, how did they get the job done? And if those people were the people who were in civil, who shouted, who rolled their eyes, who bashed the desk, all these yeah. kind of things, then you go, well, work for them might work for me. And and so this behavior can be passed down and kind of ingrained within the culture. So it's, it is difficult. I mean, if you want to change an organization's culture, it can take something like 25 years. Yeah. If you want to change a, um, a country, their culture, then it can take a millennium. Yeah. And so it can be really hard to turn the tide, but by starting to talk about it, by starting to understand the impact it can have, and by recognizing that this is a problem and we have got a solution to it, we can begin to make our workplaces better, our culture better, and we can, you know, hopefully also turn the tide on things like poor well-being and 
recruitment and retention issues that yeah. we're experiencing across all sorts of professions. I mean, that's one of the questions that we get asked when we deliver trainings to junior lawyers. Some of them say, well, our senior lawyers having this training, you know, it's all mm. very well for us to be being trained on resilience or communication, um, talked about psychological safety, civility, all those sorts of things. But actually, if you're not talking to our, our, our senior team, then what difference will it make? And I think our response is always the same, which is that change has to start somewhere mm -hmm. and we're empowering you with knowledge yeah and together collectively as a as a entry level if you like if especially from private practice you can keep each other in check and you can start modeling this behavior amongst yourselves yeah and ultimately you can be the drivers of change for the future we're not asking we're not expecting you know it'd be, it'd be nice if all managing partners kind of woke up one day and went do you know what, Let, let's really push, let's push for everything to be done differently, but that just isn't going to happen. So I think it's about enabling people to, re to enabling change, like empowering people with the information they need to re to recognize the recognize the change. Definitely. Um, and then you spoke, I mean, we maybe, maybe should just touch on as well why kind of the, the theme of the podcast and the intention behind it and, and what we're hoping, hoping to achieve. You just mentioned, um, the fact that this can be applied cross industry. I mean, we know that human factors derive from aviation. It's used in medicine. Obviously it's used in veterinary. That's kind of your, yeah. um, your speciality. And really the legal profession, and, and I've written about this before, can be I, th I believe they can be very um, righteous and, they, and think that they have all the answers. Don't really feel like they can learn from other professions, feel quite yeah. special. And I think you're missing an absolute trick in that respect because aviation's been doing this since what, since the 70s? They've mm -hmm. got all of this background, all mm -hmm. of this kind of history, all of the mistakes they've made along the way, they've learned so much. So rather than thinking that we really need to remain insular, it's like, well, let's let's look at different thought leaders. Let's look at different industries and, and grow from their successes, but also their mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and really that's where I think, you know, we can hopefully help people by saying, this is how other industries have 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 worked. This is what they've achieved, and and this is why. Mm -hmm. um, so really, throughout the podcast, we aren't just talking to lawyers. We will be talking to some lawyers, but we're really talking to people from different industries about their experiences and about how they have learned to thrive, usually in high pressured environments, um, and different techniques that they use to overcome kind of challenges and triggers within their within their professional lives so that they can optimize their well-being and and their performance at the same time. Exactly. Exactly that. I think it's when we you know open our minds to what somebody else might know. I mean we're all human. We can't know everything. That's that's it. I mean let's face it our, on our mental scratch pad we can hold about seven pieces of information more or less than by two on a good day or a bad day but the fact is we cannot know everything about everything we have to sometimes take a step back and go okay somebody might have walked this path before me they might have made the mistakes that I can avoid by talking about it by starting conversations um by understanding that we we can hopefully learn a lot and if there's anything that we can do to kind of make it easier for people coming back to the definition of human factors of making it easier to do the right thing making it easier to you know exist and, and work and thrive in this super busy world that we work in mm. um i mean i think we've we've recently talked about you know what's your answer when somebody says how are you it's 
Yeah, fine. Fine, either fine no, or fine. yeah it's been super busy yeah. and I've actually recently tried to stop myself saying oh, it's been busy because yeah. I just sort of think well that's it's been busy for a, a while we've all kind of tried to adapt to it but actually there might be other ways of we um, used to work with her we both worked actually with a, a tremendous coach and she used to start each session with a different phrase and she never sort of said how are you it was always kind of how are you arriving today yeah. or what season are you in um, yeah. and you know, if, if you did ever ask a question that you could answer good, bad, fine to, and you said that, she'd be like, no, really, you yeah. know, and, and really delve deep because you're right. We live in this kind of expectant of, of immediate results, yeah. immediate games. We don't take time. We don't take time to connect. We don't take time to communicate, to sit down, to listen. And actually on, on the way here today, I was listening to a, um, the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphreys and they were talking about why podcasts are so successful and um, not necessarily ours, but podcasts generally. <laughs> well, that would be nice. Um, but and they were saying that it's about this kind of going back to taking time and really yeah. connecting. And, and a lot of the people who run podcasts were in media and found, found themselves frustrated with the fact that they had, you know, five minutes to pull together an interview and they couldn't delve deeper. And that wasn't yeah. that wasn't the aim. And and actually having a longer conversation and really learning about people is is a is a is a great thing. And um, ultimately, being curious will will drive change. So I'm thinking that um, hopefully that's given people a fairly good insight into what we're going to talk about over the, the coming weeks. Um, I'm, really I'm really excited. I think it's such a special project to be able to talk to people specifically about you know, what do you know about thriving? What can you share? What tips come? Because let's face it, some people you'll listen to on the podcast and you'll think, wow, yes, exactly. I want all of that. I'm yeah. taking every single tip they've given. And then some people, we expect to present you with some people who you go, what? You know, yeah. this is a different thing. But all we would encourage you to do is listen and listen to understand. Just let let the words land with you and see how you feel and just be open to the possibility that it could really help you um and i think that's my kind of hope for the podcast yeah, is to like take people outside maybe their natural comfort zone mm. outside their natural lane and yeah. um encourage them to stay curious and and connect with different thoughts i think that's that's pretty much it so definitely should we um should we dive into the content yeah let's do it cool well keep listening folks um and, and provide feedback. Let, let us know. We um, One of the topics that we will talk about is all about feedback. So let us know. Um, and I suppose the other thing, isn't it? Or like, what is it that other people say? Uh, if you like it, then could you <laughs> follow and subscribe? Think to, uh, yeah, I think I think we need to streamline that. But I think it's like but, follow, yeah. subscribe. I don't know. Like, share, whatever. Yes. Whatever you do, would do with someone else's podcast. Yes. That's exactly. the kind of, yeah. And tell us We're just learning. <laughs> <laughs> Which you would definitely be able to see if you could see this up now. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Well, let's let's crack on with some of the episodes because I think it's going to be great. Fabulous. Mm -hmm.